Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us that God will judge man according to truth and according to man's accumulated guilt. Today we'll see the third principle that God will judge man according to his deeds. All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 2. Romans, chapter 2. I want to begin reading from verse number 1. And then we will come uh, to verse number 11, down to verse number 11. Our text is not the full passage that was re- is going to be read, but we our text will be uh, taken up from this passage especially in verse number 6. But I think it's important to get the general tenor of what is being said. And so I want to read from verse number 1 of um, Romans chapter 2. Verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another... Thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to every man according to his deeds to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality eternal life but unto them that are contentious or factious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath and tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. For there is no respect of persons with God. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to meet with us as we surround ourselves around your word. Help us to engage our minds with scripture. Help us to be disposed to listen to what you have to say. Help us to also understand the relevance of what will be preached from your word in respect to ourselves. Judgment is not a pleasant subject. There are many who would prefer that we deal with another a subject or another topic. But Lord, as we move through your word and preach the whole counsel of God, 
we come to themes and subjects and topics that we normally would not cover in any great depth. And so we get a more rounded understanding of your word rather than take out topical subjects and have a hit and miss uh, approach to the preaching of your word. But if we are going to continue in this path, it requires uh, your people having a mind to know what you have to say. And being concerned about your truth and not about their own feelings or their own particular uh, needs. But the needs of others and especially the need for the word of God to be declared and preached in all of its fullness and clarity. We pray for those who are visiting with us. We pray, Lord, that in the process of preaching the word, if they are outside of Christ, that we would uh, use your word in some measure, that your Holy Spirit would have ammunition to use to break down their resistance and bring them to the point where they're willing to yield their hearts and lives to Christ as Lord and Savior. For those who are on the fence, who are neither here nor there, sometimes they're here, sometimes they're not. They don't have any prolonged commitment uh, to ministry, to the church. Uh, They're just casual worshipers. I pray likewise in the process of preaching that uh, your word would get hold of them and they may understand the need to identify themselves with some local body and to put their gifts and talents that God has given to them at the disposal of the local church to be used within that ministry. And then for the saints who are here, who are members of this church, and who are faithful to this ministry, uh, I pray likewise, Lord, that you would help us to be able to edify them uh, through the preaching of your word. Finally, Lord, I pray for myself. I pray that you would get the glory, you would get the praise. I pray that you would give me the enablement, the capacity to declare your truth, uh, to do it in a way that people can comprehend it and understand it. Uh, to make it simple but also make it attractive uh, to uh, not only deal with the jewels on top of the uh, truth but also to dig into the word uh, to bring out treasure Uh, help us Lord that uh, I would be faithful in the preaching of your word thank you for all you've done in this ministry all that you're doing all you will do in the future And help us to know that you have planted this ministry here in the St. John's area to be a a lighthouse for you. Help us not to be content uh, as your people to just live within four walls. But help us understand the importance of carrying the glad tidings to those who have not yielded to the gospel and those who oppose the gospel. Remind us constantly of our responsibility to evangelize, to reach others. May you give us a zeal for truth. May you give us a passion for our Lord. And may you give us a desire for your word. May the agency that creates these spiritual cravings within us be the Holy Spirit that indwells us. May we not grieve him to the point where he's unable to work or quench him to the point that uh, he cannot use us. Uh, May we rather be sensitive, walk in the spirit. And like the Apostle Paul Help us to be those who are yielded and to be filled with the Spirit. Help us now as we go into your word and accomplish the purpose for which it is designed this morning. And we will thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. I read to you Romans chapter 2. 
And the passage that I read to you, the Apostle Paul is continuing to outline to us what are the divine principles or standards of judgment that we will face in that final terminal day when he judges the world. Now remember, it became necessary for the Apostle Paul to address this subject because having uh, brought an indictment against the Gentiles, he's now beginning to deal with the Jews. But the problem that Paul had is that you have a group of people who are religiously bigoted and very prejudicial in what they believe. And they somehow believe that they are shielded from divine judgment because they are God's special people. And the Apostle Paul has to show to them that just like the Gentiles are guilty before God and will come under the judgment of God, the Jews are equally guilty before God and will come under the... And there is only one escape which Paul will go on to explain in chapter 3 and 4 and that is to be in Christ. The only escape from judgment is to be saved. This is the whole argument that Paul is trying to do. So he's building his argument to come to chapter 3 and 4. But he has to establish the need for salvation. The Gentiles understand that because of their lifestyle. The Jew on the other hand because he has these religious trappings and uh, religious sentiments. He finds it difficult to understand why he needs a gospel and why he needs to be saved. The problem with the Jews, as I pointed out to you, is that they live in a world of false security. They were operating on the assumption that because of their ancestral linkage and their religious heritage, that somehow they would be absolved from divine judgment. In the Jewish way of thinking, their Jewishness would qualify them for special treatment by God. After all, was not Jehovah their God and were they not Jehovah's people? So why then would God bring them under severe divine judgment? Now by the way, no one understood the Jewish position like the Apostle Paul. Because he himself, being a Jew, once entertained similar sentiments. Remember that Paul in Philippians chapter 3 said, concerning the law, what? Blameless. Paul saw no need for the gospel. It was only when he had a divine encounter with God at the Damascus Road and he was marvelously transformed that he then began to understand because the scales were removed from his eyes and Paul then saw very clearly not only the Gentiles but the Jew stood before God and they also were going to be judged. So he came to realize that the Jewish position was untenable, it was prejudicial, it was delusional, and certainly it was unscriptural. And the reason behind all of that is because they were grounded in a false security concerning their standing before God. By the way, in this chapter, the Apostle Paul brings to light the horrible consequences that issue out of a person who lives in a in false security. Amen. In this particular passage, he talks about five different things that happen to a person when they're in, living in false religious security. In verse number one, the first thing that he says that issues from that is hypocrisy. I'm not going to elaborate on that because I've dealt with that before. But that is doing as I say by 
not as I do. See? That is condemning the sin in other people, but yet can't even see the sin in ourselves. That is judging other people, but not entering into self-judgment. Hypocrisy. The second thing Paul said is twisted logic. And thinkers now, the word is logizomai. And it has to do with the, the way that they think. False thinking. Thirdly, it leads to what Paul called his presumptuous contempt. When we live a hypocritical life, when we uh, operate on twisted logic, we make certain presumptions. And Paul talks about the presumptuous contempt of these Jews who take the goodness of God, the forbearance of God, and the long-suffering of God and abuse them. Rather than these things being an incentive not to sin, they become a, a motivation to sin. After all, God is good. After all, God is long-suffering. After all, God is forbearing. That is what twisted logic leads you to. Presumptuous contempt for the good things of God. And then fourthly, in verse number five, Paul says that ultimately leads to hardness. Hardness. We talk about arterial sclerosis. Paul is talking about cardiosclerosis, the hardness of the heart. Spiritual hardness. And then finally, Paul says, we come to the point because of our hardness that we become impenitent. And what that means is that we have lost the capacity to desire repentance. Our minds become so jaded in our lifestyle that we no longer have in us the power to repent. We are now trapped in a vicious cycle that keeps us in that mode that we don't need to repent. And let me give you the cycle that we are caught in as, as people who profess. I'm a child of God. Two. This God that I serve is a God of love. Three. But I'm only human. So when I sin, God understands. I'm a child of God and we go back. That's the cycle. But there's something is missing. Not only that I'm a child of God, I'm a transformed, born again believer. That is what makes me different. I am changed. And if I am not changed, I am not a child of God. So this vicious cycle, I'm a child of God. This God that I'm a child of is a God of love. I'm a weak human being. I sin. God understands I'm a child of God. But we're missing something else. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 when we come, sin shall no longer have what? Dominion. A believer is no longer a slave to sin. I repeat, he's no longer a slave to sin. If you are still a slave to sin, you are not a genuine believer. I didn't say that. That's what the Bible teaches. And what I mean by that is that a believer obviously can fall into sin. But he's not a pig. He doesn't waddle in sin and stay in sin. He comes out of sin. See? That's how you distinguish dogs from sheep. See? And pigs from, do- from sheep as well. See? The domain of a, a pig is the mud. He loves the mud. You can wash him, clean him, put a nice ribbon on, perfume him. The moment you let him go, he headed for the mud. That's his nature. See, a sheep. He gets into the mud. Believe you me, he doesn't stay there. He gets out. 
He get, I got sheep and I got ghosts. And I know what I'm talking about. They don't like to be wet. Even when the rain is falling, I have problems. They're bleeding all over the place. Move me! Not a pig. The more mud, the more wet, the more comfortable he is. And this is why the Apostle Paul is dealing with this matter, you see, because there are believers, professed believers, who are exactly in the same position the Jews were in back then and then. And Paul is trying to say to them, listen, your, your thinking is wrong. And what Paul is trying to do is, he said, I want to tell you exactly what standard God will judge everyone on. And so Paul, in this particular section, uh, gives them seven principles by which God will judge men. Now, we've already looked at two of these, and we're going to look at the third one this morning. In verse number two, Paul tells us God will judge us according to what? Truth. I'm not going to deal with that again. See? Truth. He will judge you according to truth. That is the facts. The real facts. See? Not the concocted facts or the subjective facts, but the objective facts. He will, and I dealt with that before. Secondly, uh, in, in verse number four, Paul makes it clear that God will judge us according to our accumulated guilt. See? And what Paul is teaching there and then is that we are building up a portfolio in the courts of heaven. And the stenographer in heaven is recording our acts and our deeds. And what we're doing is that we are compiling, as it were, a journal of our lives. And Paul wants to know that all these accumulated offenses are adding up. And according to the treasure of these offenses, the accumulation of these offenses, your judgment will be based on that. So not only by truth. But your accumulated guilt. And by the way, surely when it comes to justice, the sentence must fit the gravity of the crime. Don't tell me that Hitler is going to suffer the same judgment as a man who inadvertently in a fight kills another man. Don't tell me they suffer the same consequences. Don't tell me, my dear friend, that a, a petty thief will suffer the same consequences as a rapist. It's impossible. It has to do with the accumulated guilt. And surely, a man that commits a singular offense will not suffer the same consequence as a man who, who commits repeated offenses. There's no justice in that. And that's the point that Paul is making here. You are accumulating. And depending on how much you've accumulated, when God judges you, that will take it, be taken into consideration. And your sentence will be according to your accumulated guilt. And that is what Paul says uh, in, the, in verse number four. Now we come to the third principle of divine judgment, which we found in verse number six and following. Follow with me, please. Paul says, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So this is the second, the third thing that Paul is going to tell us now, that the third principle of divine judgment has to do with our, our works. It has to do with our deeds, what we do. Uh, Paul is now going to explain that. And by the way, he's going to elaborate on the significance of this in these verses that follow. And he is going to talk about two different types of people. And he's going to explain to you that our deeds stem from our motivation. How I live depends on what motivates me. What is my primary concern? 
And so when Paul talks about the deeds, he doesn't stop with the deeds. He goes on further in those to elaborate. That there are people who practice and do good deeds and there are those that do evil deeds. But here's the question. What motivates a man to live a life of good deeds that is well pleasing to God? And what motivates a man to pursue a life of evil? The Apostle Paul explains in the passage that, that comes. Now I want to uh, point out to you that in respect to this matter about judging us according to our deeds. The Apostle Paul uh, tells us four things and I just want to point these out to you quickly. Number one, it is very, very clear from that passage. We said you will render to every man according to his deeds. That Paul is saying to us that this judgment to come with respect to our deeds is going to be a universal and a personal judgment. Uh, he tells us that again and again it is coming to all men. Notice what he says in verse number three different times. Paul says every man. Notice what he says in verse uh, number 6. Who will render to every man. Look at verse number 9. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil. Notice that verse number 10. To every man that worketh good. Three different times Paul emphasizes that the judgment of deeds is going to be very personal. Every man. And may I say this? The Apostle Paul never repeats a statement like this, except he has good reason to it. And it is clear that the primary point of Paul's emphasis here is anxious to bring out that this is going to be a very personal universal judgment of the individual. We are going to be judged separately, we are going to be judged individually, and we are going to be judged distinctly. Paul is talking about the particularity of our judgment. This is not going to be a national judgment or familial judgment. You know, by the way, this is the problem with the Jews. They thought they are going into the kingdom as a, as a nation. The Jews going to heaven. The Jews will escape judgment. They were looking in terms of this collective mass of people who belong to the Lord. As a nation, an ethnic group, we going into the kingdom. And then they were looking at their familial link with Abraham. We be Abraham's seed. So because they were the ethnic group of Jews and they belonged to the ancestors of Abraham, they believed that somehow that automatically gave them collective entrance. As a matter of fact, when the Lord was dealing with them in John chapter 8, and um, the Lord was telling them, if you, you know, if the Son should set you free, you should be free indeed. You remember the response? <laughs> we would never be in bondage to any man. We'd be Abraham's seed. See? That is the argument. And the Apostle Paul is trying to focus on them and let them know that this is not going to be a national judgment. This is not going to be a familial judgment. This is going to be a personal judgment. Every man. Every man. By the way, I don't know if you know this. If you check church history, this has been one of the major problems the church has had to face throughout its history. For example, if you go to Italy, because a man was born in Italy... And he was baptized and he didn't know what was happening. Got a little bit of water sprinkled upon him. He says he's a Christian. He's a Catholic. If you go to Germany. And uh, Lutheranism is not very far from Catholicism. They do the same thing with you. So every German that is born and is baptized. He is a Lutheran. So he's a Christian. If you go to Scotland. You're supposed to be 
uh, a reform person. If you go to, to France at one time, you were Presbyterian. That's where Calvin came from. The assumption was made that because you were born in a Lutheran country or a Catholic country or a Scottish country or a French country, you ultimately became a Christian. And it's not uncommon, by the way, uh, to meet people periodically. If you ask them if they're Christian, they tell you, yes, they're Christian. After all, I'm an Antiguan. And Antiguan is a Christian country. That doesn't happen often, but that does happen. The Apostle Paul is saying in this particular passage that uh, this judgment, this judgment is going to be very, very personal. Every man, every man. The country of your birth does not make you a Christian. Neither the fact that your mom is a Christian or your dad is a Christian or your grandparents are Christian. You can't ride on their back and hold on to the church and enter into heaven. When you get there, sir, it's one by one. There's a turnstile saying you next. See? And that turnstile can only accommodate one. The Apostle Paul wants you to know that this is a very, very, very personal judgment. By the way, the reason why Paul is emphasizing this is because the, the thing about the Jew is that he knew his scripture. But he always misinterpreted scripture. And if what Paul says here, Paul is now using the argument of the Jewish Bible against the Jew himself. Because what Paul quotes here is exactly found in the Old Testament. We'll come to that shortly. But I will show you in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Psalms that this is an exact quotation that Paul gives in respect to the future judgment. That it is going to be every man, every individual. That is the point that the Apostle Paul is. So we may sin two by two, but we will be judged one by one. The judgment that Paul is saying to us as in respect to these, that the individual is the one, every man. Secondly, know that Paul points out that this judgment is going to be impartial. He says, who rendered every man according to these? And then look down at verse uh, number 11. For there is no respect of persons with God. In other words, there to be no exceptions and no special treatment to be given. Notice how Paul repeats this, by the way, for the sake of... Of the Jews twice. Look at verse number 9. Verse number 9 says. Tribulation and anguish to every soul that doeth evil. Two first. To the Jew first. And then look at verse number 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone that worketh good. To who? To the Jew first. And also to the Gentiles. So what Paul is here saying. You are not in a special position where you are given special treatment. This is an impartial. In fact. You Jews are going to get judged more harshly because of your advantages. It's always to the Jew first. You're condemning the Gentiles and you're endorsing the condemnation of the Gentiles, but you've forgotten that you have a greater responsibility. You've got greater advantage. And so Paul always said to the Jew first. You're the one going to get the more severe judgment. And he repeats that again and again. So Paul not only lets us know that it's going to be an individual judgment, but it's going to be an impartial judgment. God is not a respect of persons. Whether you be a Jew or a Gentile, or whether you be an Antiguan or a Barbadian, or whether you be an American or a Canadian, it doesn't matter. The judgment of God is going to be an impartial judgment where God deals with you one and one as an individual. 
The third thing that Paul tells us in verse number 6 is that it is going to be a matter about our behavior according to our deeds. It's behavioral. By the way, the only thing I can judge you by is by how you behave. You know that? I can't get into your mind and know what, what motivates you. But if I look at your life and see what you're doing and how you're acting, uh, I know that something... And by the way, we're coming to that. It's going to be motivational as well. Paul is going to explain to you why people do what they do. But our deeds, our behavior, manifest what motivates us. So what Paul is emphasizing at this point is that it has to do with our conduct, our behavior. Uh, I was reading some commentaries on this particular section. I was appalled at the misunderstanding on this subject. There are people who have, have read the passage like this and wrongfully say that Paul is contradicting himself of what he teaches in chapter 4 and 5. In chapter 4 and 5, Paul completely condemns works. He elevates faith. But what is he dealing with in chapter 4 and 5? He's dealing with salvation. Salvation, not of works, it's of faith. So Paul said a man is not saved by works, but he's saved by faith. So when they come to back, they say, but wait a minute. Now here's Paul emphasizing works. Two different things altogether. One has to do with salvation in respect to salvation. Works play no part. Faith. But respect to judgment. It's not faith that comes in. It's, a, it's about your works. It's about your lifestyle. So there's no contradiction here at all. When Paul is not faith versus works in respect to salvation, Paul is dealing here with truth versus hypocrisy when it comes to judgment. So don't uh, believe that Paul is in any way contradicting himself in this particular passage. You see, the hypocrite talks a good talk. But he walks a crooked path. And and that's why Paul is here talking about your deeds, your conduct. It's not how you talk, it's how you walk in the, when it comes to the day of judgment. It's not your lip, it's your life. It's not what you claim, but how you conduct yourself that's going to matter in the day of judgment. It's not your belief system. It is your behavior that is a test when it comes to this day of final judgment. It's all about how you live. So Paul is here dealing with this matter and he's showing uh, his brilliance in arguing with the Jews. Now look with me at Psalm 62 for just a minute. Two passages, Psalm 62 verse 12. In verse number 12 in Psalm 62 he said, Also unto thee, O Lord, belong of mercy. Notice the next words. For thou rendeth to every man what? According to his works. This is exactly what I did. The Apostle Paul is trying to show the Jews that what he's teaching is consistent with their own Old Testament teaching. You know it's possible to read the Bible and not see what's in the Bible. I mean, here they've got their own Bible. They've got the Psalms that tells them that every man will be judged according to his works. But he believes that as a group, as a family, they're ultimately going into the, the kingdom of God because they're Jews. They forgot the singularity of God's judgment. Look at also at um, another passage. Look at Proverbs chapter 24. And verse number 12. If thou sayest, behold, we knew it not. 
Doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth he not know? And notice, and shall not he render to every man how? According to his works. So Paul is not teaching a new doctrine. He's not teaching a new theology. He's not teaching a new form of judgment. The Apostle Paul is just saying to these Jews, listen, you're living such a hypocritical life because you have this false security. You're depending on the fact that somehow you'll be the exception to the rule that God will render you some special favor. And I just want to roll back that pretense and show you what your Bible says. It's going to be an individual judgment. It's going to be an impartial judgment. But it's also a, a judgment of your behavior. It's a behavioral judgment. It has to do with your conduct. That is the standard. The conduct. How are you living? How are you living? How are you conducting yourself? How are you behaving? See? What are your actions? That is what God is concerned about when he judges. Not what you just believe. And I can't. And I there's a false cycle going around. People are caught in a false cycle. A belief that doesn't behave is not an authentic belief. It's not a genuine belief. And it's about time believers wake up about this. There are many other passages in the scripture that don't say the exact words that God would judge every man according to his works. But the sentiment is found in many other passages of scripture. But we're not going to elaborate on that this morning to show you where, where that is hinted in scripture. Not in the exact words, but the, the essence is there in those passages. The fourth thing that Paul emphasizes in this passage is that in dealing with this judgment of deeds, it's not only personal, it's not only impartial, it's not only behavioral, but Paul is going to point out to you that it is motivational. Behind the deeds is a motive. And in this passage, he deals with two groups. One who lives a life in such a way that he practices well-doing. He lives a godly life, a good life. The other one who practices what is called evil deeds. Two different types of people. What Paul is describing is, is the righteous and the unrighteous. What Paul is talking about is the saved man and the unsaved man. And then Paul has to get behind the motivation. What makes a man live a good life? A life of good deeds and well pleasing to God. On the other hand, what motivates a man to live an evil life and an ungodly life? What does it? And Paul is going to explain to you the motivation behind people's deeds and actions. I want to point out four things that Paul talks about here in this passage. First of all, he talks about in these two groups, you can deal with four different things about these two groups. You can talk about what is the concern of these groups. What concerns them that motivates them to live a certain way. Secondly, you can talk about the character of these people. Thirdly, you can talk about the conduct of these people. And then finally, you can talk about what are the consequences, what issues or flows out of these things. So let's begin to deal with each one of these uh, individually. What is it that you live for? What motivates you? What is the underlying current of your life that propels you? What drives you? What drives me? 
I don't know if you, I, I like to say, behind every human action is some form of motivation. There's something we're trying to satisfy. Something is moving me to do what I do. When I do something wrong, if I sleep with a woman, I am motivated by something is driving me to sleep with a woman. By the way, I only have one woman I've ever had in my life. Okay, that's my wife. Okay. I hope you understand that's an illustration. Okay. But I'm motivated. There's something that is causing me to want to do that. When I go into a store and I steal something, there's a motivation there. When I get angry with a person, there's a motivation there. There's not a single thing that you do that there's some mode. You, you, uh, when you go to work, by the way, you have a very strong motive. Put food on the table, meet the needs of the home, pay the bills. But something drives you to do what you do. And this is what Paul is going to point out here. The good man is driven by certain things. There's something that he's concerned about, certain things that he wants. He's motivated by certain things. And these things are what cause him to harness his life and control his life and live in a certain way. The man that practices evil deeds, he's motivated in another way as well. And Paul can deal with that. And then Paul talks about the character. Listen, what we are, as uh, uh, character-wise, what we are inside, out of that comes our motivation. So the, the character issues are discussed here in these two groups. There are two different types of people Paul is dealing with here. And Paul explains to you, it's because of the character of these people, they have different motivations. And then thirdly, Paul talks about their conduct. It will be demonstrated in certain ways in which they manifest these things. And then finally, Paul wants you to know that there are consequences for these two people, two different types of people. Uh, in other words, uh, and by the way, these things, these consequences are, are related, related to how these people live. Now let's look at these four things very quickly. First of all, let's look at the righteous man. What's, what's his concern? Go back to Romans chapter 2 for just a moment. He's talking about deeds. He's trying to explain to you why certain people practice evil deeds and why some people practice good deeds. He's trying to explain that to you. So what he's beginning to get is to let you know it depends on what motivates a person. So look what he says in verse number verse number 7. He said to them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for what? Glory, honor, and immortality. The righteous man, what does he want? The righteous man, what motivates him? The righteous man, what drives him? What is the passion of the righteous man? What is he seeking? What is he keep going after? What sustains his energy and propels him when he's tempted to go the wrong way to pull him back and hold him in check? What does that? This is what Paul is saying. By the way, every single person here is seeking something. Every single one of us are here seeking something. Some of you are seeking love. You didn't find it yet. But don't push the gun. If it's for you, it's for you. See? Some of you are here seeking, your, your, your whole life is about pleasure. The more kicks I get, the more I enjoy life. See? 
It's all about pleasure. My, your whole life is, you know, where's the next party? You know, uh, you know, that's your, your whole, it's about pleasure. For some people in here, it's about wealth. My mommy was poor, my daddy was poor, my grandmother was poor, my great grandma was poor, I ain't going to be poor, my children going to be poor. So you're propelled to accumulate. What, what you're concerned about, what motivates you is, is, is wealth. Some of you are concerned about fame, you want to see your name in the papers. You want to see a write-up about you, you want to see a picture of you uh, in one of these um, displays. If you pass the road, they say, hey, that's Pastor Murphy, I know him. You know. See, other people are motivated by power. They want positions to control people. You're motivated. Paul said the righteous man is motivated by three things. Paul said he's motivated by glory. He's motivated by honor. And he's motivated by in what he wants is glory. He wants honor and he wants immortality. That's what drives the righteous man. That, that's what makes a person curtail his own natural instincts and live within a certain framework. Because what keeps him going is glory. What keeps him going, I want the honor from God. What keeps him saying that I want immortality. That's what's driving me. And that's why the, the good man lives the way he does. But that's not the motivation of the man that practice evil deeds. You'll see what he wants just shortly when we do the next one. So when it comes to deeds, Paul is saying our deeds are motivated by what we really want. Things drives us and drives the good man to perform good deeds. And that's because what he really wants and what he's seeking are these three things. Now what is glory by the way? The word in the Greek language. The word doxo. Doxo. We're not talking here about the vile self seeking glory. That fallen nature is seeking. We're talking here about. Uh, this is a person who wants. To enjoy the glory of God. And when you go to the Bible by the way. You'll find that. Uh, one of the things that we are going to enjoy is that we will share one day in his glory. In eternity, we will share in his glory. Amen. And part of that glory is that one day when we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Glory. That's what we want. If you look at Romans chapter 5 verse 1 and 2, it says glory is our hope. You know. By the way, when you're dealing with people who are depressed... The greatest thing you've got to give people who are depressed, you've got to give them hope. That's the only way a depressed person can ever come out of depression. You've got to give them hope. See? And that's why when you're dealing with, with people who are in a depressed state, Christians, in my judgment, are more suitable to deal with those than psychiatrists who can offer you no hope. What hope they can offer you? What hope can they offer you? Motivated by glory. And that's the supreme concern of the righteous person. That he wants to be like God and he wants to enjoy the glory of God. Uh, by the way, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 21 to verse 30. Paul says, he gives an order in which a sequence. Look at Romans chapter 8. Don't want to misquote that particular passage. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also what called... And whom he called, he what? Justified. And whom he justified, 
they also glorify. See? That's all. That's where we're headed. That's what we. That's what I want. I want glory. I want to share in the glory of God. I want to live in the presence of God not for one year, for thousands. I. That's my whole goal in life is to be with God and to live with God. That's my goal in life. And that's what. If that's your motivation, it keeps you in line. It wants you to make you to want to live a certain lifestyle. Is that what you're seeking? Jesus asked the people one day the question, What seek ye? The righteous man says, I seek glory. I seek glory. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, he says that the end of our salvation is glory. Glory. Join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy continues to show us more about the righteous man and his deeds. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.